0: Listening To the Arise Church podcast. We are an Acts 29 Church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. Have you ever come to the conclusion after much thought? counsel, and prayer, that there was a particular line of work or a particular move or a particular relationship for you, only to discover over time that that wasn't the case at all? How do you respond in those moments? The book of Acts is a reminder that God's will and his ways are beyond our comprehension. Even as disciples, our greatest act of faith is to trust him and to wait on him to reveal his will to us. Today's teaching covers a lot of text, more than the first 11 verses did in chapter 1. You get the sense that Luke in Acts chapter 1 was emphasizing something just by the sheer detail he goes into about these events. I mean, think about it. The first 11 verses, technically only verses 4 through 9, honestly, cover 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Luke packed a lot into 5 or 6 verses, didn't he? Jesus was resurrected. He presented himself to his followers. He proved himself to be alive in many, many ways. He preached the kingdom for 40 days. (laughs) You thought our sermons were long. He reminded them about the promise of the Holy Spirit. He gave them their purpose and he commissioned them for mission. He ascended into heaven alive. Can you imagine what those days were like? Imagine sitting in on those meetings, let alone waking up every day and walking around with your friend who you saw murdered and buried with your own hands. Luke could have written an entire volume covering just these 40 days, I'm sure. But as awesome of a story as that would have been, he didn't spend 28 chapters writing on those 40 days when he wrote to Theophilus. He had seen and experienced something that was far greater. And so he sprints through telling us about those days. Why do you think Luke spends more time describing this one event as he does depicting the 40 days of Christ's appearance on the earth? Before we get to the next chapter, let's slow down and investigate why that might be. Acts chapter 1 verses 12 to 26 read this way. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, filled of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. The apostles did just as Jesus told them. And as the angels had urged them, they returned to Jerusalem to wait. They stayed there as instructed. In verse number four, chapter one along with the others who were closely associated with Jesus in his earthly ministry as well. There were two key groups that accompanied them there that I think too often get overlooked. The first group named here is the women. At least two women we know were Mary Magdalene and Martha. It's highly unlikely that it was just them though. In fact, we know of at least one more. It says Jesus's mother was there. His mom was there the text overtly says that she and the other women are there together engaged right along with the rest of the disciples there in the upper room. I'm sure you had other moms, possibly with their children, other women who had maybe been outcasts for whatever reason. There would have been ladies from various sections of society there. We actually don't have to assume this. Luke actually spoke about this before in Luke chapter 8. You turn back to Luke chapter 8 in verses 1 through 3. And it says... Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. In verse number two, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. At first glance, when you see that, it's easy to overlook. And at first glance, it's also easy to overlook when it says the mother of Jesus was with them in the upper room and his brothers. That may not jump off the page at us. This is the second group. The brothers of Jesus are there. However, do you recall though, that Jesus's brothers did not believe in or follow him while he was alive. John chapter seven and verse five tells us that But it's at some point that they came to believe and began hanging around with his disciples, which was a sign that they'd become now followers themselves. This was most likely in the last 40 days or so. And it was probably because of the resurrection that Jesus went to lengths to prove to his brothers that he was alive does not take a lot of imagination. The identification of these first disciples in that upper room seems intentional. Luke had more than 100 other people that he could have named, but he tells us the women are there and so are Jesus's brothers. I think this seems to hint at the kinds of people the Lord will begin to use as the church is born. One of the major themes in Jesus's ministry was the beautiful equality of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is made up of men and women from all kinds of backgrounds with equal access and standing in Christ. Is it not? It didn't matter who you were. If God got a hold of you through Jesus's preaching, everything changed. If God got a hold of you while Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God, everything in your life would change. Think about Mary Magdalene. Once Jesus cast seven demons out of her, she became a group, of, a part of the group of women who traveled with him proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom from city to city. Magdalene isn't her last name. It's identified as the place where Mary came from, which is called Magdala, a city in Galilee, located on the northernmost, northernmost region of ancient Palestine. Historically, we've understood Mary to be the unnamed woman of the city who was a sinner that Luke talks about in chapter 7 verse 36 of his gospel in that narrative this woman washes jesus's feet with her hair and we're led to believe that she was a well-known prostitute from the north side but nevertheless when jesus got a hold of her life she went from one of those ladies to now as we come to acts chapter one one of these leaders In the Gospel of John, Jesus actually appears to Mary Magdalene first after his resurrection and instructs her to tell the rest of the disciples about his return. Let's not forget Luke said there were other women, right? Not just one woman. There were women, not one woman who had been cleaned of evil spirits and infirmities. He said there were many others. The Bible says they provided for Jesus and the disciples out of their own money. Now, I think I know where they got it, but that's irrelevant, When Christ comes into your life, you will not stay the same. And all the immorality and all the evil that you did will be redeemed and used for the advancement of the kingdom. The book of Acts is not this account of people that are so transformed that the expansion of the kingdom of God becomes inevitable. No, the book of Acts is the account of the working of a sovereign God through his spirit by means of men and women and in spite of them. By means of men and women, and in spite of them, to accomplish things they would have never imagined in ways they would have never thought with the people that we would have never otherwise chosen. And then there's this big section about Judas's replacement. We don't have to say much more about Judas. Judas, after betraying Jesus, went out and bought some land with the money and hung himself on it, fell and burst wide open. And then there's Matthias, Judas's replacement. We don't have to say much more about him today because the Bible doesn't. This is the only time you actually ever hear his name. We don't know if it's because Luke was showing that what the disciples did here was maybe wrong or hasty since they had been told to wait, or if after devoting themselves to prayer and studying the scriptures, they did what they thought was best and they cast lots, even though that was still an old covenant practice. It may not have been wrong, They did their best with what they had is what I believe. And and, and I think it doesn't matter if this was a good thing or a bad thing. As we study this narrative and read this, the one thing that we see for sure is that everything falls under God's control. Let me read Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 to us. Proverbs 16, 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. Remember they prayed in Acts chapter one, and they said, you Lord who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. In God's sovereign control, the decision fell to Matthias. Whether or not God used him as one of the apostles is probably debatable since clearly God had a different plan and he used a different person, a man named Paul who became the last apostle and he took the gospel to the nations. But what matters is that God being sovereign means that God works with us at times and through us at times. And he also works in spite of us. You and I are not the focus We are not the focal point. The point is that even when it's a dice roll to us, no matter what it is, God supersedes that and he's in control of that. He's sovereign over that. No matter what's going on in our lives or the things that we come into contact with, we aren't the focus. And even when it's a dice roll to us, starting a new job or hiring a new person, dating a new person, hoping to find someone looking for a house and then having to move right away. We rolled the dice, but it's every decision comes from the Lord. You should be asking the question, well, if it can be a dice roll, then what should we do? What are we to do? Because that's clearly what these disciples did here. They rolled the dice, they cast lots because Judas is gone and now they need to figure out, well, what are we gonna do? We must need that 12th man. Well, I think taking our cues from the apostles, the leading women with them, and the other hundred or so disciples that are there devoted to prayer, we see at least four things. The first thing that we see that we ought to take as an example and take our cue from is that we obey. They did as they were told, and they went back to Jerusalem. They could have made excuses. Luke went so far as to tell us that it was a day's journey back from the Mount of Olives. In addition to that, they just saw Jesus go up in the clouds and there the angels told them he's coming back in the same way that he went. They could have decided we're going to camp out right here. But they didn't. They heard the instruction and they obeyed what the Lord told them to do. Obedience is still better than sacrifice. As a disciple, as a follower, as a learner, as a Christian, we take our cues from the Lord. What he has called us to do, commanded us to do, we walk in that, even when we don't know what the outcome will be. Obedience is first. Secondly, by looking at their example, we see that we ought to be those people who wait Although I think, again, it's debatable as to whether or not the casting of lots for Judas's replacement was premature. The reality is they were still waiting. They went back to the upper room and they waited there. And trust in the Lord means that we're going to be patient. And being patient means that we're expecting God to move before we do. Our motion, our response, our uh, moving or doing anything should be that thing that is uh, Following the move of the Lord, the move of the spirit, we ought to be those who wait patiently, but wait expectantly for the Lord to move before we ever do. Which leads really to our next point. We pray. What do we do when we wait? We ought to be those who pray. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter one and verse 14, they were devoted to prayer. They went back to the upper room and they had a 10-day prayer meeting. It's possible that when Luke says this is where they were staying, they had actually been in and out of the upper room for more like 50 days prioritizing prayer. Prayer is our admission of need. It's how we align our hearts with his heart. Prayer is our declaration of dependence. I need you, God. I need you to move. I need you to work. I need you to do something, not in my own strength. And so taking our cues from the disciples, we see that they obeyed, they wait, they prayed. And what is the last thing that we could infer from their activity? I think our fourth bit of application would be that we study and, and specifically we study the scriptures. The fact that Peter stood up and he spoke from the scriptures leads us to believe that this is actually something that they did often. They had begun to devote themselves to doing this just like they had also been devoting themselves to prayer. You listen to Peter's words and you study some of the obscure cross references he used from the book of Psalms and you realize, man, he must be taking Bible study seriously. How did he come to that? This is before the Holy Spirit had actually come and fall on them and given them the kind of supernatural insight. So, so I'm saying as you wait and you pray and you obey, going to the scripture is where we find God. We find divine revelation from God himself in the scriptures. And when we study the scriptures, it reveals to us what God's heart is, even when we don't know his will. This is what we can do. When we think that it's a dice roll, when we're praying, God, what is your will? Where ought I go? How do we respond? What should we do? What should we not do? This is what trusting the sovereignty of God actually means in some practical terms. You know what we experience on a personal level that we have to work through in relationships or on the job or even in just direction in life as a disciple of jesus christ it doesn't only happen personally it also happens on a corporate level as a church right we believe it's necessary for us to have certain organizational structures in place so we form up a leadership team and we want a team of people to help plan and promote the care, the ministry, the outreach from the church. We have elders who will pray and talk and plan the arise elder team. We even sense God's leading us to the avenue, but there was no clear step by step. This is where you go. This is the address. This is how you get there. So what did we do? Right. We followed him by faith. And ultimately, in the path of discovery, as we waited, as we prayed, as we trust him, as we sought to obey him, and even as we studied, we got to a point where the Freedom House opens up. And we open up the Freedom House and we organize outreaches and we seek to spread the gospel to the least, the last and the lost in our neighborhood. But while we're responsible to do these things in obedience to the clear commands from Scripture, like go into the world and preach the gospel to all nations we have to also be alert to the working of God in ways beyond our ability to predict and to plan and to execute. Whenever we see that God has been opening doors and doing new things, we need to be quick to move in those new directions. Perhaps even setting aside our plans and our programs. Even when we've been well-motivated and our actions are based on some biblical principles, God is not obligated to use our plans, even though he may. He works with us He may work through us, but he often works in spite of us. God being sovereign means that God isn't controlling you and I or not. When we look at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, there's a big idea in here. I think it teaches that God may wish to use methods and means and men and women, which will not only be more effective, but which will give all the glory to him. Our greatest act of faith, as I said out at the beginning is to trust him and to wait on him to reveal his will to us. This, this is how you trust God's sovereignty. This is how you trust God's sovereignty in moments where your best guess may fail you. Where your plans may fail you. Where it may feel like a dice roll. Where you may have devoted yourself to investigating what does God want for my life? Sought counsel Spent time in prayer and often found that God was doing a whole nother thing. Obey him, wait for him, pray to him and go to God's word. But ultimately, we need the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what God would provide. He gave the spirit to them. It was in these days that God poured out his spirit on them. And he empowered them to go about their obedience and their waiting and their prayers with new impact. He gave them a fresh wind and fire, and we need that. Why don't we pray and ask God to do that in our lives? to do that yet again, to fill us afresh. We know that we have the Holy Spirit as the seal and the promise and the guarantee of our salvation, but there's also this place of, we deeply desire the renewal and the restoration and the revival, as David said in Psalm 119, that ongoing revival that comes by the Spirit. And we pray and ask God to give us that and to do that yet again. In the midst of it all, we ought to trust him remember the he's the one